Being a mom is the toughest job there is, and it doesn't come with instructions. So it's okay if you don't have all the answers. We'll figure it out together. This is Mom Brain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Hey guys, welcome back to Mom Brain. I'm Ilaria. And I'm Daphne. And today we are talking with Dr. Alyssa Berlin, who is a psychologist specializing in pregnancy, postpartum, and parenting. There definitely is something in this for everyone. She's got really good information. So you're really wanna, hard, useful, yes. like pointers, things you'll want to write down, and be like, I'm gonna use yes. this next so time. So there is good information that is very practical. And then there's like really fun, like I mean, you have you'll see how this whole thing unwinds as per usual. Unraveling. Um, unravels. Um <laughs> There's definitely uh, talking about putting sex in your calendar, which I feel like everybody always thinks about. And is it a good idea? We shall see. Have a listen. Mom My name is Dr. Alyssa Berlin. I am a perinatal psychologist. Um, together with my hubby of about 23 years, we've got four awesome kids. Crazy enough, the oldest is just got his permit. Um, and so <laughs> very different phase of life. Together, Elliot and I founded the Berlin Wellness Group, which is a holistic pregnancy postpartum wellness center out here in Los Angeles. I am on the advisory board of ICANN, the International Caesarean Awareness Network and on the training committee of Maternal Mental Health Now. Um, I am a Postpartum Support International LA Coordinator, and I am the founder of the Afterbirth Plan Workshop, which is a workshop that I do to help couples prepare for that transition to parenthood. I do it live in LA and globally via webcam. And very exciting, early 2020, it's going online um, in a self-paced format so that couples can do it from the privacy of their own home in their own time, in their own space. Very cool. Excellent. And where can we follow you? Ah, uh, you can follow me at theafterbirthplan.com or on Instagram, Dr. Alyssa Berlin. What are certain things that we should look out for um, for postpartum? You know, it's a really great question. And honestly, if it's okay, I actually want to take a step back mm -hmm. because we use the term postpartum and postpartum illnesses very interchangeably. And we actually want to make a distinction, right? So. Any woman who has a baby in utero is pregnant. And in the same way, any woman who has just given birth is in the postpartum period. And the postpartum period is a very natural time of life that if we can recognize it as its own entity, we then honor and embrace what the natural changes and fluctuations of that time look like. So you're not expected to have it all figured out day one. Not everyone bonds with baby the second that baby pops out. And there's a learning curve involved, right? You know, when you move into a new home or you start a new job, it doesn't just feel homey and perfect and like a natural fit straight away. And the same is true with postpartum. And I know you guys know this, right? You've been through it several times. Yeah. Um, and we want to create the space for moms first and foremost and dads and new families to know that it's normal to struggle and to take the time to figure it out and that that's okay. Then we segue into postpartum and the distinction or postpartum illnesses rather and the distinction really is between the baby blues and postpartum illnesses. Upward of 80% of women struggle with the baby blues. Um, it's something that I'm a big believer that anything that 80% of a population is experiencing is normal. Not feeling like yourself, crying for no reason, 
um, not feeling grounded. Um, you know, there's a major recalibration that needs to happen after we have a baby. And Daphne, I know your little one is just a couple of months old. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you experienced? Um, not this time around. I've been going, you know, screaming from the rooftop, shouting from the rooftops to everyone that if I have any more babies, they will all be summer babies. Uh, because for whatever reason, uh. I gave birth August 14th. I feel like, you know, the final couple weeks of my pregnancy were very relaxing, uh, you know, in the dead of summer when most people are sort of scattered their millions of ways and we could just sort of be homebodies and relax and prepare for her to join our family. And then giving birth in the middle of summer or, you know, sort of in that middle of the month of summer, um, I kind of just like hung out in a bathing suit and nursed and relaxed and there wasn't the crazy crush and pressure that um, that, you know, you can feel sort of going going back to work. But also have all my other babies I had in winter months and in Manhattan where it's freezing cold and you can't be outside. And if you have any you know seasonal affective disorder, which I think, uh, you know, I've 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 diagnosed myself with after the fact because I was just I it was much easier for me this time around. And I think a big part of it did have to do with being able to breathe fresh air and be outside and um, and you know and spend time with the baby in a very relaxed setting. But I will say that um, after Nika, I've talked about this with my third. I did, and I mean, I've I'm, I've been lucky. I'm not someone who has you know historically struggled with depression. Um, but after I had my third baby, I really did feel like I was sinking into this. And it was strangely out of body. It was, um, and I think I, I talked to your husband about this, just to everyone to have a little backstory. Alyssa and I know each other because her husband, Dr. Berlin, both Dr. Berlins, her husband is a um, prenatal chiropractor, among many other things, out in LA, who I was very grateful to get to see when I was living out there for MasterChef. And it was just like, it was, at a, at you all, everyone who's ever been pregnant knows that time where you're like so heavy and achy and tired and no one who, who's afraid of touching a pregnant woman will touch you. Like a, a masseuse won't like really adjust like, you. Or, pre, like prenatal like, massage. Oh God, just, it's like, moisturizing. It's like, they, like, exactly. There's <laughs> the like tapping. <laughs> And he was like, now, look, I'm just going to tell you, like, I've been doing this for God knows how long. Like, I, you know, I just, you know, I'm I'm actually going to help you feel better. And he he put his hands on my neck. and I was like, ah, someone, someone's actually going to, like, relieve this horrible tension in my neck. Anyway, all that to say, um, after Nika, I I talked about the fact that I I felt this completely out of body sense of um, just like upset I didn't feel like myself crying all the time things were things were in this very negative light even though on a logical level I knew everything was amazing and my grandmother when I was crying to her on the phone maybe a week after I'd given birth said you know did you take any probiotics after you gave birth and I told her I hadn't and only then did I realize I'd had this major course of antibiotics in hospital that wiped out my gut bacteria and never had bothered to replenish them and within three days of starting this like you know potent source of anti- of uh, probiotics, I should say. Um, and I know everyone always asks every time I talk about this. I, I used Metagenics probiotics. I don't think that that's the only one that could do this. Like I think any potent, viable source of probiotics is a great, you know, a, a big dose of them consistently over the course of a couple of days is a great way to replenish, plus lots of fermented foods. Um, you know, your, your pr- properly fermented sauerkrauts and kefirs and yogurts, et cetera, really do wonders for your gut. And I do, be- I truly believe, and I've witnessed for myself that the mood starts in the gut not to distract oh, from yeah. the fact that 80% is more than just gut. 80% of people experiencing some form of baby blues means probably there's some biological evolutionary benefit to us having that experience if so many women are, you know, are having it, but it's it's hurting us if we're not 
if we feel ashamed about it or we're not talking about it or we're, you know, feeling like we're alone in that experience, which we definitely are not. And I want you to know, I I feel for you guys because Elliot and I were in New York for a couple of days actually filming an episode of his podcast. And the thought that kept coming to mind was, I don't know how I would raise kids in New York. <laughs> I can't imagine dealing with the bundling and it's, the unbundling yeah. and the getting ready to go out the door and then changing a diaper. And I mean, it was enough to take care of me and all the bundling. You create a system and then you realize that there's elements about it that are, make in, make things easier in some ways. Like there's tons of museums. There's always something going on, you know. We will go to like there's a Kmart around the corner from our house or there's a Petco nearby or there's a Barnes & Noble. And we can just like be like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go do this activity or that activity. So there's always something to do. Whereas when we spend time at our, our home out in Amagansett, out in East Hampton, it gets to be a little Groundhog Day when it's cold out. When it's cold outside, you're like, "All right, now what are we gonna do?" Because there's not a lot going on. Um, but yeah, no, the bundling is brutal. But you come up with little <laughs> tricks. Wait, but so, Alyssa, I want to. I want to. I I do want to focus on your work with new mothers, and and I also want to focus on your work with, as you say, new families, like partnerships in the post baby you know, life phase, because I do think we spend a lot, we try to on this podcast, spend time talking about, yes, ways to give you smart parenting strategies and ways to make your parenting life more successful. But at the core of that is ways to make you the mother in most cases on this show happier and more stable and feel more supported and feel more nurtured. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, um, recognizing those signs of, of postpartum depression and what you can sure. do to get help for it. And then I'd love to talk about the relationships that matter most around you and, and what that sort of evolution looks like. Yeah, that sounds amazing, you know, and making that distinction first with the postpartum period. And then as you were talking about Daphne, the baby blues, right, that, you know, that need to recalibrate yourself and just not feeling quite like you're right in your own skin is really huge. And I'm going to look more into that probiotic piece because that's a really interesting connection um, that I hadn't thought about in that same way. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to the conversation around postpartum depression, we now recognize that that's actually a small piece of a much bigger puzzle. And the term in the field right now is perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, or PMATs. Psychologists love their acronyms. And the reason for that is a couple of things. You know, so the word perinatal is any time from conception all the way through the first year of life. And what we now see is that many women are symptomatic during pregnancy, oftentimes in that third trimester. And we want to be mindful of that because especially if a woman is starting to struggle during pregnancy, we want to jump on that, recognizing that that does increase the likelihood that she'll struggle postpartum. And there's a lot that we can do and put in place during pregnancy to perhaps ease that postpartum adjustment. The reason mood and anxiety disorders is that, unfortunately, the illnesses in the postpartum or that perinatal period have exploded. And for a lot of women, it'll actually look more anxious or rageful than it will depressed. And it's important, again, that we're mindful of that because so mm. often, you know, a woman may say, well, I'm not depressed, so I can't be struggling with a postpartum illness. Or how often, you know, well-meaning people around the new mom may say, oh, honey, it's normal to be worried. It's normal to be anxious. All new moms feel that way. And when we do that, we really close down the conversation because that woman is sitting there saying, there's nothing that I'm feeling that feels normal. There's nothing about this that feels normal. 
but you've already made it no longer okay for me to share because you've invalidated that experience. Mm-hmm. And what I see most often in my practice, you know, more recently is actually um, perinatal OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder mm-hmm. seems to be on the rise, you know, that I'm seeing more common than postpartum depression or even postpartum generalized anxiety. Why do you think that is? You know, I think there's a lot of different reasons. I I think, and you guys do such a great job of talking about the pressure that new moms feel and the need to get it right. And we have these unhuman expectations of ourselves that just create this breeding ground for that anxiety and that frenetic energy that comes with it. We know with someone who struggles with OCD that their thoughts kind of get sticky. So what do I mean by that? We all have what we call intrusive thoughts, right? These thoughts that come out of nowhere. We've all been on a plane at some point and we've said, gosh, like what would happen if that hatch just opened right now? And then we kind of jump back and we say, well, that was a weird thought. And then we dutifully go back to binge watching whatever we're watching on Netflix, right? Kind of looking around, making sure no one saw, you know, or was thinking about it. When someone struggles okay, but you with just said that. I thought I was the only person that ever had that, like, really <laughs> creepy, weird thought. <laughs> you see, Daphne? We're in this together. <laughs> uh, amazing. And, and, and listen, everyone has intrusive thoughts. We've all had those weird thoughts. And then again, the difference for us is, is that we dutifully come back in our body and never really give it a second thought. For people who struggle with OCD, it's almost like there's chewing gum stuck to the other end. And they can't get that thought to go away. And the more it sticks, the more it grows in its intensity and its disturbance level in our body. And then what we often do is we'll engage in some kind of compulsive action, whether mental or behavioral, to alleviate that anxiety momentarily. What we don't realize is that we're increasing the likelihood that we're just going to go back through that, that loop once again. You know, so some things that we might do, you know, some women who struggle with things, you know, related to germs. So maybe it's a lot of hand washing or purelling the house, which is different than the new mom who says, hey, new baby, we live in New York, it's cold. Would you mind washing your hands before you pick up the baby? Right. This is the person who's sterilizing the home. Or you may have the person who, you know, needs that constant reassurance. Are you sure it's okay? Are you sure he ate enough? But do you really think he ate enough? And needing, again, that constant reminder and reassurance can actually be a form of a compulsion or a symptom of, of you know, more of an OCD type of experience. Uh, who, who do you typically see? Like, what, what's your typical patient? Or who is your typical patient, I should say? Sure. So, you know, it's very interesting. My platform is prevention, right? I am working on connecting with OBs and midwives and anyone in the birth-related field and trying to get it to catch on that 28 weeks during pregnancy is your postpartum check-in week, which means, right, we're not waiting for it all to hit the fan, but during 20, you know, at that 28-week mark, we're normalizing that everyone should start thinking about what their postpartum plan or their afterbirth plan looks like. And the reason that I think it needs to be so universal is we remove the stigma associated with mental health. Mm -hmm. So as far as we'd like to think that we've moved, there's still that stigma. And if we're picking and choosing who we're telling to prepare or not, it's like, well, what do you think? It, why, why me? Mm-hmm. But if it's across the board, right? right? And think about it. OBs don't say to you, hey, do you want to check your blood sugar? We think it's a good idea. Hey, do you want to check if baby's head down yet? Like, you know, we like to do it, but completely up to you. It's just, here's what we're doing. This is just that next phase in the process. 
And I would love them to use that same approach in terms of checking into postpartum because my passion as much as possible is prevention. How can we help women and families and and partners just be prepared for what's coming next so they don't have to step in, it's a step out of it. So ideally, I'll work with couples during pregnancy doing a workshop um, and helping them, you know, just some education and information knowing what to expect. Did you think that's at the core of why why couples do struggle post, that they just don't know what to expect and what's coming down the pike? I think that that's a huge part of it. I think that we were fed this notion that there's just no parenting manual, right? And therefore, you have no choice but to just jump in. If there's no preparation to be done because there's no manual, you know, great, I'll, I'll go get a massage or we'll caress the bump together all day. That's a really interesting point because we do actually say exactly that. There is no manual. Mm-hmm. You, there's nothing you can do. Nothing I could have done would have prepared me. We say all of right. these things. And I'm. there's a lot of validity in what you're saying in terms of there actually are tools that we can arm ourselves with. So then I know that when I'm feeling this and this and this, I can go there. And you know what I mean? I think there's, there are things that we can't prepare ourselves for, which is just life experience coming our way. And as sure. and having too much of a plan sometimes can yeah. can kind of mess us up because we're like, oh, well, that didn't go the way that I had it planned, you know, but but also, you know, to have sort of there is a manual of like, OK, let me go to chapter seven. OK, this is what's going on. OK, now I'm going to go over to, you know, chapter 15 and, you know, paragraph three where I where I learned to, what to do when I'm starting to obsessively clean the apartment. For sure. For sure. And I've created that manual for people. But, you know, it's very interesting. Hilaria, anxiety tricks us into thinking we've never done this before and therefore we can't possibly have tools to bring to the table. And it's simply not true because we've all had moments where we've been stretched. We've all had moments when we've struggled. And it's important for people to recognize that whatever helped them then is likely going to help them again. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there are certain things we can't possibly know. And like we want to be careful not to have too much of a plan so we can go with the flow. But like you said, there are absolutely things that we can do. Something that I hear you guys say all the time, you know, happy kids have happy parents to show them how it's done. And I want to add that happy partners make happy parents. And so if we do a lot of the work there in terms of keeping the partners happy, it feeds into the happy parents, which feed right into the happy kids. And that's where a lot of our preparation can happen. What, what kind of preparation do you typically counsel your the look not everyone raises kids in couples so I think that this is yes. not just to say like your you know legal husband or wife this is the person who's supporting you um, yes. in one way or another through the experience of that postpartum period what's what's some of the advice that you typically give to the people that you speak to sure and Daphne thank you for making that distinction you know I think that the face of a family has changed dramatically and absolutely find your people, find that new version of the village for you because we all need that support. So when I work with expectant you know, individuals or couples, I'll often default to the analogy that I had come up with that really conceptualizes relations for, relationships for me. So when I think about relationships, I think about walking up a down escalator. So think about it. You put in a little bit of energy, you'll make some headway. Put in a little bit more energy, you'll make more headway. But the second you stop actively climbing that escalator, life's just naturally going to bring you down. And the same is true for relationships. Put in a little bit of effort, you'll feel connected. Put in more effort, you'll be more connected. 
But the second you stop actively and mindfully um, investing in that relationship, life just naturally brings you down and farther apart. And having a baby speeds up that escalator. So it requires us to double our efforts that we put into that primary relationship, um, not pull back, which is what we see happens for a lot of couples. So what do I tell people? I have, you know, kind of my, my three-pronged approach, if you will. And in listening to a lot of your podcasts, there's a lot of symmetry in the things that we talk about. Um, the first one for me is what I call the daily double, and it's making sure that you have daily time set aside to connect with each other. It's not about time to talk about problems within the relationship. It's 10 minutes for each of you just to stay connected with the little nitty-gritty minutia of each other's day right? So that no more than 24 hours ever go by without connecting, right? It's like, I know you, I remember you. Um, and it's that moment of just cheerleading and supporting one another, which is really important. The next one for me is date moments. And it may surprise you that I'm not a big fan of date night when we have kids. And here's why. Have you ever tried to compete with sleep? <laughs> we don't like for things to compete with sleep because we'll all have the best of intentions and then eight o'clock's going to roll around and we're going to look at that clock and we're going to look at that babysitter and we're going to say, we could go out for dinner, but you know, little Timmy goes down for his long stretch right now and we can grab it if we want. Um, so I'm a big fan of date moments. Um, definitely we want to continue dating, right? Dating is a lifelong experience. Hilaria, you, you talked about, right? That we're still girlfriend and boyfriends, which still is huge. girlfriend and boyfriend. <laughs> 100%. Committed relationship does not mean that dating stops ever. But date moments. A date moment is an hour or two that you set aside. And it could be in the house. It could be out of the house. Ideally during the daytime where you just spend time together and charge each other's batteries and charge the batteries of the relationship. Um, and then the last one is sex. Um, making sure that we find a time to plan physical intimacy. So that in the same way that no more than 24 hours ever go by without having a conversation together, we want to make sure that no more than a week ever goes by without having a date moment or a chance to be physically connected. Because we all know that the electricity in the household is very different when sex is on track. But the planning. Go, go to <laughs> planning, this. I know. You and I are thinking the same thing. I, I, like, literally, I, I don't know if I want planning. to write that in my calendar. I know. I got, because then you're like, all right, mood is on schedule. right like, now. No pressure, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> so what, what? Elaborate yes. on the on the schedule. On, on the scheduling, the planning. Is it like just should happen within the week or is it exactly at a 3 p.m. on a Thursday? So let me explain. And by the way, how you choose to put it in your calendar, I will leave up to you. <laughs> Especially Foot rub. <laughs> sure. Butterflies. Um, first of all, first of all, I want you to think about a vacation that's coming up and how when we put it on the calendar, there's this anticipatory energy that comes up as you count down to that moment of when you get to go on vacation. And to a certain degree there could be a very similar energy that goes into knowing on Tuesday afternoon, it's gonna be our time together. Sometimes I like to think about that anticipation energy being your foreplay. You know, we can go with that. Um, I think if we were honest with each other, rarely is sex as spontaneous as we like to pretend that it is. And usually what happens is, is that one person's in the mood and then they start to orchestrate the environment to move things in a direction to make it happen. 
And that could be more challenging when you're on baby time because there's so much that needs to get done that more times than not, nighttime is going to roll around and you're going to look at each other and you're going to be like, I'm too tired, right? So whereas dating at least will make it to the list to compete against sleep, sex is not even going to be in the ballpark. Unless you use your dating time for sex. Ah! <laughs> that So, Hilaria, it's so funny that you say that. I have a client who talks about winning their dates. And their idea of winning their date is that they start their date with sex. Ah. And this way, right? And then it's in. You get, you're like, cross Wait, that off That's the list. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, my gosh. Ah. Well, but that's my interesting. I know. You're coming like, out. <laughs> um, that you get it out first. And then maybe it makes the rest of your date together that much more efficient. That you're already feeling connected. You're not like working up to feeling you know or then you go wow you have a big meal right <laughs> well, way better. get your cardio in first I'm too tired <laughs> I, that, that's right and that's wine. exactly it <laughs> totally because like you said you infuse that energy into your date moment and you, you get you rid of that awkwardness a hundred it's like dessert first who doesn't like dessert first people yes and it does. It gets rid of that weirdness at the end of will it, won't it, what are they expecting, do I have to, I feel so full, I'm so tired. Mm-hmm. Gone. It's just fun. I love these. I think these are really usable tips for for people to stay. Look, if I mean, I, I, the escalator analogy is a good one. I do think that um, somewhere along the way, even as we eschewed like typical princess roles and blah 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 somewhere along the way we got sold a bill of goods that was a relationship has to be easy if it's working a relationship has to be effortless if it's good like people started thinking that if they were working or that they had challenging moments or that they disagreed or that they felt disconnected sometimes that like it meant there was something inherently flawed about the relationship and I I don't happen to think that's true I think that all I think that Ideally, you are you are constantly evolving. Ideally, your partner is constantly sure. evolving. The question is, yeah. are you evolving towards the same destination and, to, and mm-hmm. together? And the only way you can find out is if you maintain open communication. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, I'm fascinated with like love languages and the way people hear uh-huh. affirmations and the way that they hear appreciation. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like the best ways to motivate and talk to our partners. Sure, absolutely. And and I even think that that's true of all relationships. It's true of life in general. A lot of us feel like if life is not happy-go-lucky that there's something wrong and how do we get back to normal? And the reality is, is that normal is ups and downs. Mm-hmm. It's how our nervous system is hardwired. Um, and I couldn't agree more. I think oftentimes that secret of postpartum is not will it be stressful or won't it be stressful? It's going to be stressful. But how do we keep that stress from becoming a divisive force between the two of us and instead maintaining a stance of us against them, right? It's us against whatever that stress might be is huge. Um, And I'm with you. I think love languages are amazing. I think it's really important, you know, a couple of different things. It's important to recognize how we like to be nurtured. And that's important. And, you know, to make sure that If that is something that we're aware of, that we're sharing it, we're not keeping it a secret. In the history of relationships, mind reading has never been an effective means of getting your needs met. (laughs) So let's let it go. And then once we have a sense of ourselves to use that same energy and and have a sense of what our partners need. Um, And I don't know that there are many shortcuts besides really talking and taking the time to explore 
what is meaningful to the other person? Um, getting the Love Languages book is, is helpful to start to open your mind to this notion of a love language. And then I really like for people to not feel so stuck or rigid just by the five that the book comes up with, but instead to really explore and play with what's yours. Mm -hmm. And there's no harm in trial and error. Start, no, no one complains if you give them a gift. So get a few gifts. See what happens with your partner. Do they light up? Do they feel connected? Do they feel more nurtured? Amazing. Play with quality time. Play with words of affirmation. Mix it up. Combine them, right? If we make this a mainstay of our dating and our day-to-day -day moments, then it just enhances connection. You can't go wrong with them. And again, if you're struggling and you're not sure what your partner needs, ask them. Be willing to explore it with them if they don't know. I mean, I think that that really is in, in any relationship. And we always talk about like being honest and open and stuff. like, And that always seems kind of scary in some ways. But, you know, I've said it before. I think secrets are only scary when they stay secrets. When you tell them, you know, and it's, and it's fun to get that close to somebody. It's fun to be able to say to them this and not be afraid and, you know, just just be able to be a complete open book. And then you realize how much more you can be fulfilled from it. It is, it is the gift that keeps on giving when you can be open with your, with your partner. Um, I, I do just because I, I think I want to give, I love giving like little takeaways to our, to our audience um, in terms of, you know, you talked a little bit about how we can identify the difference between the baby blues um, versus um, depression or uh, do you use another word? Was it disorder? Was it postpartum disorder uh, or illness? Uh, we, yeah, we talk about PMADs, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Yes. I'll let you say it because that was like, <laughs> sounds sure. really good coming out of your mouth. Um, PMADs. So, PMAD, PMADs. Um, but I, I just want I want to give people the ability because sure. I think there's there's two people that not two people that can be listening, but there's there's two main groups. One, somebody who has either has or will um, like right now has or has had in the past um, PMADs. And then there is then there's the the person who who sees a friend. Um, we we do have believe it or not we do have dads that listen to us as well um, that they notice that their that their um, wife is acting a yeah. certain way or a one a, a a couple of two women where their wife is um, is acting in a certain way and how they can help them get help for sure. And where I want to start with that is time frame, right? Mm -hmm. So. Baby blues typically start two to three days after a baby is born, often coinciding when we're leaving that hospital, mm -hmm. right? Um, and last for about two to three weeks. Okay. Um, what you want to know is that baby blues are something that will likely clear up on their own, but there are things that we can do to support that. Anything you're going to do to take care of your physical self is going to nurture your emotional self. So good, healthy food, right? Nice, warm, cozy things. Um, Going, getting outside, taking a walk, getting in that almighty shower, um, talking, right? I tell partners all the time that your job is to be that listener, to listen to your partner share their birth story like you didn't have front row seats to the experience over and over again because women are verbal processors and there's a catharsis that comes with sharing our birth story. And we all know that, right? There's some bragging rights and, and rites of passage that come with that. Um, touch is also huge. Nothing signals to another person that you're not alone and that you're supported more than touch. These are things that can really help. 
when it comes to PMADS, right? So once you cross that three-week mark, we're no longer in the realm of baby blues. And if mom or dad or partners, because we know that it hits moms and dads, right? It hits all partners. Um, when it crosses that three-week mark, we're no longer in the realm of baby blues. And if they're still struggling, we've segued into something deeper. Um, so that can oftentimes be a really good delineating point, you know, to help distinguish them. And there's a different level of intensity that comes when there is a depression or an anxiety at play. And I agree that oftentimes it's the non-birthing partner that might recognize that the birthing partner is struggling even before they themselves recognize it. Um, and so that's why it's so important to me in my workshops that we go through education around PMADS so that everyone has that information, you know, what, what's helpful to say, what's not helpful to say, what are the risk factors, what do we want to look out for so that if there is something there, we can jump on top of it. Mm -hmm. Because what we want to know is that PMADS are highly treatable. And so early detection and early intervention is huge to help return that family to inherently a happy phase of life. When you say they're tr treatable, what, like, what are some of the treatments involved? So unlike the baby blues, which will likely go away on their own, PMADS do require professional help. Um, so psychotherapy and when necessary, medication are the two modalities that are most effective in treating them. The last question I'd like to ask is just, do you think that marriages or partnerships or, and particularly post-children partnerships face materially different stresses now or worse stresses now than they have in the past? Do you think that's a contributing factor to why we hear about maybe what maybe why we're hearing about more of this evident incidence of PMADS and postpartum depression and anxiety? Or, um, or is it just something you think we're only just talking about it more, but it's always sort of been there? You know, which is a very interesting question. Um, and, and here's my thoughts, right? Let's say we were to go along that idea that it, it is actually intensifying more cases, more struggles. And we do know that two-thirds of couples do experience a decline in relationship satisfaction after they have a baby. So significant. Wow. Yeah. Why that might be the case is a couple of things. I think one of the things that we see as we're ebbing into 2020 is that there's not the same clarity around roles within a relationship, right? So if we go back to the days of Leave it to Beaver or Donna Reed, husband, wife, mom, dad knew exactly what their job was. And there's something to be said about that clarity. There's something to be said of knowing what, what's your responsibility and together working hard to have the family run smoothly. You know, in today's day and age, we don't have that anymore. There's more of this egalitarian sense of, I know in our home before we had kids, it was like whoever came home first started dinner. Well, you could see how that starts to get tricky now of like, wait, you, I just got home. I'll stay in the car. You, like, who's going to do it now? Or like, there's just not that same clarity around that. The other two things that I think in general are the biggest challenges to our generation and so much more so in the postpartum period. One is our phones. Our phones, I think, are single-handedly interrupting the whole process of attachment and entombment. And so if there's already a natural energy for either or both partners to feel isolated or um, abandoned, well, phones are just exacerbating that problem because now it's something else to compete against. I'm not now just competing maybe against baby, but I'm also competing against a device to get your attention or to be seen. And the other thing that I think is a really big struggle of our generation is our pace of life. 
Um, we move yeah. so fast and we're expected to do so much. It was interesting. I picked up a book the other day and it was a book that was written over 20 years ago. And the guy was talking about watching a documentary um, about the advent of the sewing machine. And apparently the tagline under the sewing machine was, what are women going to do with all their free time now that oh, they yeah. have this incredible device? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <Right>? Oh, wow. <laughs> right. fast, fast forward to, you know, almost 2020 and people are like, I don't think I could use a sewing machine. Yeah. What? Seriously, what is that? <laughs> I don't know. What? <laughs> right. But what he noticed was every time we do create this new device that's meant to, quote unquote, save us time, we find five things to fill that one hour. Mm. So we're running at an even bigger deficit than we ever were before. Mm. So all of that juggling is exhausting. And then five o'clock rolls around and everyone, whether you've worked at home taking care of babies or you worked outside of the home at an office or a job, everyone comes home at five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, and it's like, I'm done. But yet there's still so much that needs to happen. And who's doing it? Right. And I think that becomes a really big struggle for the relationship and extra stress on the relationship. Yes. Well, you've given yes. us so much to think about. I really, I I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting, now I'm thinking about the sewing machine and, <laughs> and remembering discovering an old one in my grandmother's attic. The one kind that like you would pump with pump your it, foot, yeah. which was really cool. And I think I vowed that I would learn how to sew and I have not done that. Um, something to do with another free hour that I will find somewhere along the way. Um, Alyssa, right. we want to ask you uh to, we, we like to get from our guests their favorite thing. Is it a calendar, calendar that, uh, that, that says sex every Pat Tuesday the bunny at 7 p.m.? <laughs> <laughs> you know you're thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> to copy the assistant or not to copy the assistant, <laughs> that is the question. This is why you write it down in hand and it's just yours and no one else's. <laughs> That's right. That's why it has to be like pancakes. And you guys will have to report back and let me know what, what individual spin you put on it. Well, there's a book out there right now that I'm absolutely in love with. Karen Kleiman came out with a book and it's called Good Moms Have Scary Thoughts. And it's a great book because it's very user friendly. It's cartoony with hands on, you know, tips and ideas. And it's just such an easy read. And it's so reassuring for moms to know that, again, you can have scary thoughts and you're still a good mom. That I it doesn't that. take away from that. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for taking the time. You guys are awesome. Thanks. Mom play. All right. So that was Dr. Alyssa Berlin. And I, I mean, I have to say, I do think there's a there could be some validity to the idea that Sex is never as impromptu, certainly after kids, as you would most, you know, most of us would want it to be. That there is, um, there is like anticipation around it and also stress around it that you wouldn't get to it. And I kind of like the idea that like get to sex first and then enjoy the rest of your date moment. Um, I, I think anything you can do to depressurize something that feel like, especially because sex should not feel like something that is work. It should not feel like something that is like, I got to put my time in now and like, you know, fill the coffer for the week. It should feel fun. And I think if you can, if by scheduling it, it takes some of the pressure off of like, when are we going to find time to do it, which itself can be anxiety inducing, then I think that's kind of a nice thing. I want all of you guys to listen very carefully. If you have found yourself in a place where it becomes work, like it's not fun anymore and you feel like you're just doing it for him, 
there's a lot of work that needs to happen because sex should be fun. It should be exciting. But at the same time, there, of course, especially with kid, like lots of kids or one kid, you're, when you're tired, there are going to be times when he rolls over to you and is like, great, let's do this. And you're like, no, no, no. I'm like so tired. I can't even think about it. And there are times when you have to just do it anyway because I think you but prime the pathways. But shouldn't be all the time. Not all the time. But I think you. I think it's very easy, to our point from before, it's very easy to fall into, into habits you don't want to form and very hard to establish good ones even though in the long run they become the ones that serve you best and they become the ones that are the easiest – long term to maintain and I do think it's I have so many girlfriends who like said no just long enough that it became too easy to say no and then like seven months go by and they haven't had sex and it's miserable and also if you don't want to try to have fun and it might happen Mm -hmm. it's all about taking that negative attitude and turning it into a positive attitude and choosing our thoughts and choosing our thoughts yeah there you go yes there you go speaking of favorite things time for our favorite things (laughs) So you guys know that I have three dogs at home. I've got two seven-year-olds, Dama and Gitana. And then we adopted Diego Manchego recently. Diego Manchego. Diego Manchego, who is really like wild and full of energy. And we're doing tons and tons and tons of treat training, um, which my two older dogs are really excited about it. Unfortunately for them, they're not supposed to be having too many treats because Uh. they don't have as high of a metabolism as Diego Manchego. So it feels very, very unfair. So I found a couple of different options. One is like break things into really, really tiny little pieces. Um, And like for dogs, they don't need to have like the whole treat. They can just have like a little like literally like a little crumb of it. And they're like, this is the best thing ever. Um, So but one thing I really like is these canine granola factory um, Mm. treats. They're green bean chips and they're like dehydrated green beans. The dogs surprisingly really like them. It was definitely I know it was definitely one of those things where I've seen them in the in the pet stores before and I like kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, yeah, right. This is like the dumbest thing ever. Your dog is going to be like, okay, I don't want that. But um, they actually like devour them and they love them. So my dogs who are not allowed to have too many cookies, my older ones, um, get to have these as well as Diego Manchego. So everybody is happy and there is no sibling rivalry. I love that. Okay, so my favorite thing, I know you get sent a lot of stuff too. Uh, We get sent very generously lots of, um, you know, fun cool things and some not so fun cool things but I got sent this brand Apple Park um kids toys and I like for I picked it up and I was just like it was such a cute I I got some this like little tiny watermelon blankie it's a crinkle blankie for Gigi you know those ones that make that kind of like noise and I first of all it was adorable so I thought like she would love it and then I started reading the materials and it's this line Apple Park I'd never heard of them and I have to say I'm on their website now and there's so much great stuff that I want to grab but what I like best is it's 100% organic cotton all low impact fabric dyes phthalate free non-toxic crinkle paper like it just prompted for me how much of the stuff that we just pick up when we're like you know at the store and you want something fun for the kids to play with that you're not actually really aware of all the sort of many chemicals and many plastics and many unnecessary additives that have to be included in the sort of traditional way of making things that new brands and new companies like this are actually trying to be creative about giving you alternatives to. So anyway, I just, she loves them and I'm really glad to have know about a brand that has a lot of the stuff that I would have bought sort of the conventional version of and now I have a a safer, hopefully, you know, better version. Um, And I thought you guys would like to hear about it too. Love that. 
I actually love that brand too. I've never heard of them. I'm so glad to know about them. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, spread the word. Blah, blah, blah. All your friends about it. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) What is that? The Charlie Brown? Yeah. The Charlie Brown thing. (laughs) You guys know this. Email us. I do know because I know very random things. Charlie Brown's not random. All right, guys, email us, mombrainpod at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, YouTube, and listen to us next Wednesday. Until then, bye. Bye, guys. This is Mombrain with Ilaria Baldwin and Daphne Oz. Mombrain is a Gallery Media Group original production.